Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Finance Lab podcast, home of Neugroup interviews and insights about the future of finance and the office of the CFO. I'm Anthony Michaels, editor of Neugroup Insights. In this episode, I speak with Tad Fowler, treasurer and head of global tax operations at Procter & Gamble, the world's largest consumer goods company, whose brands include Tide, Bounty, Gillette, and Pampers. Tad's background is in tax and accounting and includes stints at General Electric and PwC. He joined P&G's tax team after consulting on the company's 2005 acquisition of Gillette and became head of tax at P&G in 2022. He was an assistant treasurer for about two years before taking that top job in 2021. One person running both tax and treasury is not typical among current Neu Group member companies but it may become more common as corporations break down silos and seek one leader capable of steering two groups that often must work together closely, but whose collaboration isn't always smooth. In our conversation, Tad explains the various ways he got up to speed in Treasury and why he thinks one person running both teams makes sense for P&G. We start by talking about a career Tad did not pursue, but might have, professional musician. Enjoy the show. Tad Fowler, thanks so much for joining us on the Strategic Finance Lab podcast. Happy to be here, and thanks for the opportunity to have a discussion today. Tad, before we jump into your professional P&G role, I want to talk a little bit about your personal story because I find it pretty interesting. As you describe it, you are the only non-musician in your family. Tell me about that. I am the only non-musician in my family. Yeah, my, my dad was a um, jazz musician and my mother was a violinist. And my sister, as it turns out, became a professional singer. And, um, you know, I, I, they may have said early uh, in my life that probably should have been the career I pursued. But it just wasn't, uh, at the time, anything that was as exciting to me as, as other things that um, I was interested in. But I love music um, still to this day. Probably something when I retire, hopefully I'll be able to pick up again. And you did tell me, though, in one of our other conversations that there may be something in the minds of accountants, which is what you went on to study at uh, Wichita State, right? Correct. Uh, and musicians. What, is there something to that? There are studies out there that, that say that the mind of musicians and the minds of accountants think very similarly, very analytical, very, um, you know, the ability to, to process um, a lot of different things that are happening at the same time. You think about improvisation and jazz, for example. There's a there's a basic um, framework, if you will, for how music is played. But people have the opportunity to go out and improvise so long as they're staying within a framework. And I would say, uh, not that that would would say that accountants. Um, are, are very creative, although although there is a creative element to it. But I think, you know, having a framework, knowing how to work within that, stay within a gray zone without getting too far outside of it, or uh, the, there's a mind that, that's able to do that and do it well. And I, again, I think there are studies that would show that there's similar ways that musicians and accountants think in that way. And what generally led you to accounting and becoming an accountant? Um, you know, it's a good question. I, you know, I certainly didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an accountant, but um, I got to college and I, 
um, got involved with some organizations that I saw people graduating and getting really good jobs out of school with accounting firms. And um, so I thought, you know, I was in business school and thought I'll take a couple of accounting classes and actually uh, was very interesting to me and certainly the more advanced accounting courses. And it's something that uh, kind of clicked with how my, my mind thought. And so I figured between um, being okay at that and seeing other people were getting good jobs out of school with that degree, why not, why not pursue it? And it certainly has been, um, for me, um, a blessing that I chose to, to pursue that because it's given me um, through uh, those opportunities in the accounting field, lots of, um, you know, lots of opportunities I probably would have never imagined I could have had. And let's talk about one of those opportunities. I know you spent some time at KPMG, and then you found yourself at General Electric. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that had a major impact on the course of your career going forward. Tell us what you learned there, what it did for you. Sure. I mean, like most accounting graduates, I needed to get a couple of years of public accounting experience under my belt to be considered a, a get my certification, professional certification. But after that, the opportunity uh, came up to join General Electric in their tax organization. And um, so I I thought, what a a great company and a a great opportunity. And so I joined GE. And what it did for me is uh, give me an introduction to how businesses work and how, you know, at the time, you know, I've been a tax professional my whole career, how tax interacts with the business and the importance of, communication skills and the importance of rolling up the sleeves, but at the same time being, get, you know, being able to get out of the forest and, and see the, the forest. And so uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity. GE obviously uh, was a very global company. And so it was an opportunity to get exposed to um, issues that I hadn't really seen before in a, in a more U.S. Um, confined context. And so Things like foreign exchange rates and the impact of that, different macroeconomic environments, uh, different tax policies around the world. All of that, you know, sort of gave me uh, an introduction to a multinational business, which um, I call a boot camp. I was there three, almost four years, and it was a really unbelievable experience for someone at that point in my uh, that point in time in my career. You left GE because you thought you may not have enough uh, chops to get where you wanted to. You ended up becoming a partner at PwC right. by the age of 32. Yeah. How did you do that? And how did being a partner there lead you to then eventually come to P&G? Yeah. Um, well, you got a great memory, Anthony, from all of our conversations historically. But um yeah, you know, look, I was I was young when I was at GE, probably definitely naive at that time, and um, I didn't feel like, as you said, I don't, I didn't feel like I had the chops to ultimately continue to progress in the company uh, in, in terms of what my aspirations were. In hindsight, I was clearly wrong, but but so I, I wanted to go out and credentialize myself, and I and I, you know, thought the way to do that was to get back as an advisor or consultant in a firm and and get partner on my resume. And so um, I left to go to PwC, and, and very quickly, uh, hey, I'll be the first to admit, I got I got into the right office in the right city at the right time. And honestly, the education I had gotten at GE was, as I said, boot camp. It it really was a big facilitator in terms of my education at that at that point in time in my career. And I was able to take what I learned there 
and use it in an advisory capacity. And you combine that with, you know, being in a great market and having great clients and you're there at the right time, kind of the stars align. So I was able to make partner pretty young and then um, started doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions work. And um, in 2005, uh, there was a, a very large acquisition by P&G of the Gillette Company, and we were brought in, my firm was brought in to help work on the um, tax structure of that transaction. And after about a year of working on the advisory side, was approached about um, my interest in coming in-house to P&G because there had been a couple of different life events for the company, and there were some new capabilities needed given those life events. And so... Um, you know, I had the unique opportunity of, of working with the company for a year before deciding to join them. And I um, really like the culture. I like the company. It's an iconic company. And it was a really interesting opportunity for me. And so um, I decided to join P&G and had a really unique experience of, you know, advising on a transaction for a year and coming in and having to implement what, as an advisor, we had been advising for a year. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me. And it really gave me perspective on how wide a bridge can be from idea to execution. And, um, but a, a tremendous opportunity and, um, you know, don't, don't regret for a day ever having made that decision. And, and I believe you told me that in, integrating Gillette within P&G, tax and treasury were sort of joined at the hip. And talk to me about that and how then we find ourselves talking to you and your treasurer of P&G as well as head of global tax. Sure. I think, you know, look, um, you know, there, there's, there's so much that tax and treasury need to be tied at the hip for in order to ensure that we are providing the the optimal amount of value to a company, whether it's in the, the mergers and acquisitions space, whether it's in dealing with, with you know, very complicated crisis markets, whether it's dealing with, you know, how to finance uh, business expansion around the world. Um, you know, as an advisor, I, I unfortunately had the opportunity to work for a few companies where tax and treasury were, were not very well integrated. And I continued to see um, either opportunities slip by or uh, potential disasters occur. And so um, I, I appreciated the fact that, um, that, that P&G understood the need for the two organizations to be tied to the hip. And Gillette was, um, again, it really changed the profile of the company in terms of uh, where cash was being generated. Obviously, with Gillette, it brought in some new markets for us that uh, they were larger in than we were. Um, and so, you know, there, there were going to be new issues with trying to manage cash. There was going to be new issues with investment in the combined business. And how do we do that, you know, tax efficiently? We took on a lot of debt to acquire the Gillette company. And at the same time that was going on, um, there was a one-time incentive in the United States for companies to bring back historic overseas cash at a reduced tax rate. And so when we were trying to figure out the Gillette capital structure, try to deal with the, the incentive the United States had given to repatriate um, foreign cash, um, when looking at the new uh, country footprint for the company, there was just a whole lot of interesting 
uh, tax and treasury issues that that collectively working together, we were we were able to create a lot of value for the company. And um, the CFO at the time, who had previously been the treasurer, who had also even before Gillette had engaged in quite a bit of M&A activity, understood the importance of the two organizations working together and the value that can be added. And so I think it was just sort of a natural evolution over time for us to bring the two organizations together. And we've got attributes that that make that structure work. I'm not saying it's the right thing for everybody, but but for PNG, I think if you were to sit back and say conceptually, what what are the advantages we would get by having these two integrated? I, I think we're we're seeing those opportunities um, come to fruition. But but that's that's sort of the background. It was really that that change in the footprint and the operational changes we were making in the new capital structure that required us to work very closely together to make sure we were um, man- managing all those issues collectively as a team for value for the company. So so that said, the integration and knowing each other pretty well, there's a learning curve, right? When you are given treasury, I know first you were an assistant treasurer and then made treasurer. Talk to me about the learning curve and through the eyes of some other tax person who might think of coming over and taking on treasury as well. Sure. Uh, what, what were the big hurdles for you? Um, you know, the big hurdles were, um, well, let's first start with, I was very fortunate to inherit a treasury organization that had tremendous mastery, okay? Whether it was mastery of the capital markets, we also um, have responsibility for, for the defined benefit and contribution retirement programs, as well as insurance. Um, a lot, a lot of mastery that um, allowed me to be able to come in and um, not have to, you know, not have to understand all of that as quickly as I could, because I could, I could count on those individuals. Um, But I think, you know, the learning curve was, you know, there's a lot of similarities between tax and treasury in terms of what you need to, to have success, which includes um, really digging into the details and understanding the economics of what's being proposed or, or what um, is being being done. And so the ability to get very, very technical and the ability to get out and explain that technical stuff in a very layman's way are things that are very consistent in terms of the need for leadership in those those organizations. And so for me, the, the, the challenge was just getting in and understanding the economics of things like cross-currency swaps, interest rate swaps. I mean, I had a general understanding just given we had been advising on the tax implications of those sorts of risk management tools historically, but, but, but you know, rolling up your sleeves and, and understanding those sorts of very technical things is obviously a, a, a bit of a challenge. I think I didn't probably completely appreciate the, how the relationships with banks um, was, um, you know, look, as, a, as an advisor, we've got a lot of consultants and advisors out there that want to work with us. And they learn as much from us as I think we learn from them. And it's a very much a, um, it's very much a partnership. And it is with the banks as well, but it's a different relationship given, you know, their participation in providing credit and credit facilities. And that was, you know, just managing those relationships was, was different to me than it is with um, historic tax advisors, if you will. Um, but 
But I think I, I give the banks a lot of credit for providing the opportunities to come in and, and learn from them. Um, I give my team tremendous amount of credit for investing in me. Um, th those folks in my organization that have mastery love to demonstrate it, and they demonstrate it as well as they can when they're educating others. And so huge investment on my team's part. But, yeah, I, I just think it's, um, you know, capital markets, issuing a bond. You know, I, I'd never sat through that. And so, yeah, I think, I think what I tried to do is when opportunities presented themselves to be very engaged in things that normally someone at my level might not be engaged in, I just tried to take advantage of it and, and learn from it. And I got very comfortable very quickly. I don't need to be the deep master in a lot of this stuff. I just need to make sure that mastery exists. And my goal was to try to build over a period of time a sixth sense to be able to at least not be an empty suit and, and ask questions that I thought were relevant as, as we're thinking about risk management for the company. So um, let me what stop about, there. And say, about, yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, I mean, obviously it sounds like you've got a tremendous team and that's who you lean on most when you're in this position. If you have a team like you did, um, what about peers and perhaps peer groups? Well, that, uh, that's, that yeah, that's where I was going to go. I think peer groups, I mean, look, Noy Group, I, I think I've attended my first session in 2019. Um, I, I thought that was a, a, a fascinating um, agenda in terms of how those meetings are handled and a great opportunity to network with others and, and build relationships that we've been able to leverage outside of those specific meetings. And that's been very helpful. And, it, and it's worked both ways. Um, and so um, that's been that's been helpful. Again, the, the, the banks were helpful. And um, but yeah, I, there's I, I've learned. Look, I've been doing this uh I think I graduated college 32 years ago. Uh, the importance of networks in our business is hugely uh, critical for our long-term success. And, and so um, I, I think you, you can't underestimate um, what you can learn from those. And so things like Noi Group and, and just, you know, relationships I had with my tax peers historically – um, leveraging leveraging them and, and getting introduced to, to their treasury organizations. I mean, you can learn pretty quickly who's got similar issues, similar philosophical approaches to risk management, et cetera. And um, those, those have proven time and time again to be uh, valuable sources of learning. And like you said, you, you give in order to get, which is for sure group likes to produce and you've gives you've given sessions on different topics and one of them I believe and I want to ask you about to to share a little bit of your thoughts on given the world we're in right now is crisis management tell me about you know how do you know what you know about crisis management and <laughs> and are there some general tenants that you think can be passed on in a couple of minutes that that might be useful yeah no, I think so. Um, yeah, look, it's a it's a complicated world out there, and we have a large footprint. We operate in many markets, uh, all regions around the world, and so being able to um, to to effectively manage crisis markets is critical. Because we have, we have large businesses in many of these markets, whether it's in Egypt or Pakistan or uh, you know Ukraine or you know Argentina, Venezuela. Historically, these are very complicated markets, and. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think we've developed a pretty good system internally, what we call an early warning system, that um, we distribute to, to key leaders in the company 
where we're out gathering macroeconomic and geopolitical information on our, on markets where we operate in around the world and try to gauge whether or not we might see a crisis coming. Okay. And, um, and, and that gives us the opportunity to sort of get in front of these markets and figure out how do we want to manage these and, um, you know, how the business wants to manage them. And so um, I think that early warning system has been a, has been a very uh, good, um, that's been a good tool for us. And then, and then once we see things coming on or, or whether we don't see them coming on, once, once a market's hit crisis mode, and we can define that many different ways, Okay, but once it hits it, it becomes critical that we in Treasury and frankly tax um, are tied to the hip with our business partners to make sure we're we're making the right short, mid and longer term decisions as it relates to the market. Okay, and so whether um, there's a lack of foreign, you know, hard currency in a market to be able to pay for imports, whether it's capital controls on the ability to extract profit out. Um, I mean, we've seen we've seen all kinds of different ways that governments are trying to protect themselves to deal with a, with a crisis that's underway or they're in the middle of. Um, it, it takes us philosophically changing how we think about managing the business, where where maybe our management's typically a P and L focused um, company. For internal management purposes, we we move away from that and try to focus on cash and try to preserve cash and protect cash. To the greatest extent we can, and that that takes sometimes a different philosophical approach to how we run the market, which requires close collaboration between Treasury and the business. And talk to me a bit about the other topic that we can't avoid today uh, in any sphere: technology, and how within tax and Treasury you are leveraging the power of new technologies, and how you've seen this evolve, and how it's helping you and your team. Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many advantages of technology. I mean, to the extent we can mechanize through technology processes, that's better from a compliance and from a, you know, less prone to human error, if you will. Um, You know, both tax and treasury still navigate the gray. And unfortunately, uh, technology, or maybe fortunately, depending on your perspective, technology hasn't quite figured out how to do that. But I think from a from you know those things that we can mechanize um, through through technology um, is critically important. You think about things like um, from a productivity perspective. I mean, the world around us continues to get more complex, and if we're not able to to find ways to do more routine things from a from a technology perspective, we're not going to be able to create capacity to be able to focus on those things which are of higher value. Um, in, in the company. So technology plays a critical role. Obviously, the ability to, to talk seamlessly and immediately with our bank partners around the world um, is, is, is important. Um, our ability to transfer cash around the world with the push of buttons has been a, has been a huge enabler to risk management and to um, protection of, of our balance sheets around the world. And so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but I think about it in terms of risk management and productivity. Technology has been critical enablers to both of those. And we'll see what AI eventually presents in terms of opportunities for us. Um, I think I, 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 you know, I, it's easy for me to envision how you might, how we might be able to use AI to enable what we're trying to do in, in, um, in P&G. 
but you know, there's there's a reliance upon obviously data and good data, and that's always sort of the challenge. And you know, how do I think about payouts for investments needed to to datafy our data, if you will, to be able to appropriately leverage AI from a tax and treasury point of view? Obviously, from a P and G perspective, we, we've uh, continue to progress with our use of AI in terms of consumer understanding and consumer be consumer behavior, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, I look, it's, it's a critical element of our strategy. Is it hard to get budget for technology for tax and treasury? Um, and, and how do you overcome those hurdles? If obviously they want to invest in the business, which is producing the revenue, um, and, and how do you navigate the, I need people who understand what tax and treasury do, but also understand treasure, uh, technology. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, look, there's, there's aspects of technology we've needed to invest in as a company to provide the right governance and stewardship around what we're doing. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I love this company and I, continue to pinch myself every day and consider it the best place in the world to do what I do is um, we, we believe in the importance of the right governance and stewardship and compliance framework around everything we do. And so um, that, that generally um, I, I would say there's always, you, you always want to be able to articulate the value that you're, that you're driving by specific investments, but it's not always about adding um you know, it's not always about adding profit to the bottom line. Uh, that is the 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 uh, key decision, um, the 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 key element of a decision, if you will. It, it, there is a lot about is this going to provide long term governance and stewardship, which should be good for the bottom line. Those two things aren't you, know, you can't you can't delink those. So, but but yeah, I think you know it, we're the company's been relatively. Um, accommodating, if you will, in terms of making the investments that make sense for us on, on a mid and long term basis, and um, so I, I feel very fortunate in that regard. But you know, it does take an articulate rationale as to why money needs to get spent, and I and I do think that's where you know the ability to communicate with the C suite, the complexities and technicalities of the world we live in. That's that's if you can do that. That's one of that's a certainly a key enabler. I want to go back just briefly to this idea of what you called uh, double hatting, or I think in some cases you're telling me other in other areas of the world you are triple hatting some people. Um, give me an example though of where that double hat that you bring to bear pays off where you can maybe perhaps head off what might normally be a treasury tax conflict or how, you know, it pays off having all of this knowledge in Tad Fowler. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> I would never, I would never suggest I have all the knowledge. I, I would suggest that I've got organ, you know, I, I, I do have an organization which when they are, I'm not going to say forced to work together, but when it just naturally is inevitable, they're going to work together because we're very integrated. I, I think it does a few things. One, it, it to, to the greatest extent possible ensures that there are seams that aren't missed. If you've got corporate accounting and treasury and tax all focused on their very technical worlds, it's easy uh, for something to get missed. And, and we've seen that as, as a company in the past. It could be an opportunity. It could be a, 
oh my gosh, we didn't see that. And had we seen it, we may have taken a, a different path, a different path. But, you know, as, as we're trying to manage balance sheet exposures, we're trying to ma- manage, um, you know, f- making sure we've got access to, to foreign currency for imports and for other things, the, the ability to have somebody that is familiar with both the tax and treasury implications of those decisions, A, it, 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 it ensures that you get to potential solutions, I think, on a quicker basis. And I, I think it ensures that, that we can quickly prioritize, if there is a conflict, which priority is going to win the day. And um, that's not to say that we, we always very quickly agree on that, but I do think we get there quicker than if we were, we were separate organizations. And so um, I, I think that's where we, we, we see the benefit through prioritization. We see the benefit of, through closing seams. There's a productivity opportunity as well. You know, I don't need a treasurer you know, a, a senior level treasurer and a senior level tax person in every region in the world. And um, frankly, cre- it creates the opportunity to make a more interesting career opportunity for people. You know, it, it gives a tax person maybe the opportunity to also do treasury or a treasury person maybe the opportunity to do tax. And in some cases, to your point, um, I've, got a, I've got a leader right now in Latin America that owns tax, uh, treasury, and the controllership job for Latin America. And you know, that's a that's a huge role. Right. And that's very aspirational for people. And so I, I think that's that's another opportunity just from a from a career development perspective. So, um, yeah, now that that doesn't mean that things always are as seamless as they as they in theory could be. But, yeah, I think we've we've created a, a pretty well uh, an organization that works very well together. There's a lot of trust that took a while to build, but there's a lot of trust and uh, there's a lot of respect for the mastery each of us brings. And I think the ability for people to learn a little bit about those other technical disciplines is exciting, is also exciting for people. And to end on this note, I think um, you're talking about career opportunity. You've had an amazing career. Um, for someone who didn't grow up in treasury or corporate finance, I might look and say, wow, this guy's got what it takes to keep moving up into the C-suite, but um, you have, well, tell us about what your plans are. What do you see for yourself in the next five to 10 years? <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I love what I do. I, I really do. I love the company I do it for. Um, you know, so long as I'm healthy and so long as I feel like I can contribute to the company and so long as so long as they want me there, I, I you know, I don't have any short-term plans to, to do anything but what I'm doing. And you know, one of the things I love about P&G is, is, you know, every day, every month, every year, it's, it's a new challenge. And so I, I don't expect that um, my job's ever going to get dull. And so, yeah, so long as I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I can still do it, I, I, I plan to do it. I, I, I don't plan to progress any further in the company. I got plenty I can, I can do where I'm at, I, and, I, and I love what I do. Um, the job's not getting any easier, that I will tell you, for, for many different reasons. But that's part of what makes it so um, interesting and, and challenging, and which probably in a weird way is my definition of fun. Well, I can't let you go without pressing a little bit on that. It's not getting any easier. What, as we stand on the brink of 2024 with all sorts of economic and geopolitical uncertainty, what's keeping you up at night? What's making it not so easy? 
you know, it's a good question. Um, I, I answered this question the other the other day. I said, you know, the good news is there's not there's not a lot that keeps me up at night because I'm blessed with such working for such a great company and a great organization. Um, and, and I've got very strong organizations underneath me and, and the company understands what we're trying to do and they invest where they need to invest. And so I feel like I've got the resources I need to be able to manage the complex world we're living in. I think, you know, if I were to say what, what, what does keep me up at night, it's a lot of the things I don't control or, or even understand are out there right now. And fortunately in my career, I'll knock on wood, haven't had a lot of those situations, but look, the, um, you know, the 2025 fiscal cliff in the U.S., I'm spending a lot of time on um, there. You know, obviously the, the U.S. budget situation um, the, and uh, the long term economic balance sheet or the long term balance sheet um, projections of the United States. I think it, it sounds silly, but, you know, we we can't begin to continue to work on those as too quickly. I mean, uh, those are, and, and we're going to see it in the short term in 2025 when there's going to be a, a tax reform. And so I'm, I'm focused on that. Um, obviously, the, the macroeconomic situation around the world continues to, to drive a lot of our priorities. And we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about how to how to be out in front of these. And once we're there, how to continue to manage through them. Because, you know, a place like Argentina, you've got regulations changing sometimes on a daily basis. And and things you thought you might be able to do to manage risk um, become more complicated. Not because, not because maybe the government didn't like what you were doing, but maybe because it's just such a broad rule and regulation, you don't know how it really impacts what you were thinking about. And so... All, all those things just make the job very challenging. And I, if I'm up at night, it's because I'm intellectually stimulated trying to figure out how to deal with these things. Well, I think Neugub has been very lucky having you part of our network and sharing your insights and uh, your breadth of knowledge. And we really appreciate you coming on the Strategic Finance Lab podcast. Thank you so much. No, I appreciate it, Anthony. And, um, you know, thanks, for, thanks again for having me. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Neugroup's Strategic Finance Lab podcast. Please join us next time for more insights about the future of finance in the office of the CFO. I'm Anthony Michaels, editor of Neugroup Insights.